Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am thrilled to welcome back today Andrew Gerald. Now, you may think, hmm, that doesn't sound like what you said last time he was on the show, and that's true. I actually found out that I mispronounced his name when I said Jarrell last time. So all these years I've known him, I've been mispronouncing his name. Andrew, I'm so sorry. Your last name is Gerald. Welcome back to the show. It's quite all right, Jed. Thanks for having me back on. Andrew, as you all may remember, is one of our amazing SICU pharmacists here at Johns Hopkins, and it's a pleasure to have him back on the show. Um, so we are going to discuss um, kind of a continuation of some of the stuff we talked about last time, but we're going to focus on prophylaxis. So we're going to talk about prophylaxis of both venous thromboembolism, commonly known as VTE or DVT, and then also stress ulcers. But I do want to tell you before we get started that I'm excited because once again today, this episode is going to be featured on anesthesiologynews.com. And of course, as you know, Anesthesiology News is the independent monthly newspaper for anesthesiologists. You can find their archives and all their multimedia and web-exclusive content at their site, anesthesiologynews.com. They really do a great job over there. I was pleased with how they highlighted our last episode that we did on chronic pain, and I think this is going to be another great opportunity for them to have it up there and for us to check out the other stuff they've got going on because they do some really great journalism over there. So, Andrew, we're going to be featured there, and I think that'll be a lot of fun. Go check out anesthesiologynews.com both for this episode, see how it looks, and then, of course, for everything else they've got going on. All right, Andrew, let's jump right in. We're going to talk about, uh, let's start with venous thromboembolism. Uh, Let's just start with the basics. What is the uh, kind of epidemiology of that? How frequent are venous thromboemboli in patients? So venous thromboembolism, or VTE, which is really the grouping of DVT and PE, uh, without prophylaxis, we expect that somewhere between 10 and 30% of patients will end up developing VTE. Those numbers vary a lot based on whether we're talking about symptomatic VTE versus asymptomatic. Some institutions and some studies routinely use uh, screening to, to look for VTE, which, which actually isn't recommended in most cases. Um, but, but we can expect between 10 and 30% of patients without prophylaxis to end up with VTE. All right, so it can be pretty high, and these are patients in the hospital. That's right. So this is specifically for hospitalized patients. There's a lot of variety between different subpopulations, so big difference between surgery and medicine. In general, surgery patients are at a higher risk of VT as compared to medicine patients. And then within surgery, we think about special populations like trauma, for example, where we have an even higher risk as compared to the general surgery population. And really what we're, we're thinking about here is the Virchow's triad, which is the combination of stasis, vessel injury, and a hypercoagulable state, which really sets patients up for worst-case scenario with developing VTE. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, patients who have had surgery or even more so trauma are way more likely to have that vessel injury than a medicine patient who you know, may not have had any injury to the vessels. So that exactly. would be. Yeah. Yep. All right. So what, what are we looking at in terms of what, is, what does it appear? When, what does this look like when a patient has a venous thromboembolism? Do they all have shortness of breath and tachycardia and fever? So it really depends. Like I said, in some patients, it's completely asymptomatic, so you may notice nothing. Um, in patients with PE, you, you may have some of those clinical symptoms that you described. Um, in patients with DVT, you don't necessarily expect that. So you might have fever, you might have a white count, uh, you might have edema of the lower extremity. It re- really depends. There's quite a bit of variability with that. Great. I think that's really important that probably most of these are asymptomatic. So by no means, uh, if someone doesn't have any symptoms, doesn't mean they don't have a venous thromboembolus. So What's the point of prophylaxis? Does it help? It does. So pharmacologic prophylaxis in particular can reduce the rate and incidence of VTEs by between 45 and 70%. So it's a pretty significant decrease. 
It's a um, huge decrease. It is, yeah. And then different mechanical strategies, ambulation, also lead to pretty significant decreases as well. So important to do all that we can to, to prevent them because it does definitely reduce risk. So, great. Now, does it matter? Uh, what, if we said most of these are asymptomatic, so you know, why do we care about uh, avoiding this? Yeah, it's a good question. So pulmonary embolism in particular is associated with between 5 and 10% of all deaths in hospitalized patients. So pretty significant problem in, in the U.S. medical system. Um, I'd say in addition to that, we have VTE prophylaxis and VTE development as criteria that are being evaluated by a number of different organizations as quality measures. And so it's important for us to pay attention to it, A, because of the safety it conveys to our patients, but also because there are a lot of groups making sure that we're doing the right thing for our patients and we want to make sure that we're complying with, with the expectation there. Yeah, that's I totally agree. And so just to summarize, while most of these are asymptomatic, when someone develops a PE, uh, it's not good. And if it's certainly a large PE, it's going to be symptomatic, and, and then the, de- you know, the risk of death from that is not insignificant. So <clears throat> while most of them are, are asymptomatic, we certainly don't want to just uh, dismiss them. And then, as you said, regulatory bodies are looking at both our patients getting prophylaxis and our patients developing these thromboemboli. That's correct. All right. So what should we be doing specifically? Are there any guidelines out there about how we should be prophylaxing? Yeah, so the key guidelines are are the CHESS guidelines. Uh, Those were last published in 2012. They address a number of uh, different patient populations, and they're actually broken down into a lot of different subsections. So there's a section specifically on medical patients, another section on non-orthopedic surgery patients, another section on orthopedic surgery patients. And so within those guidelines, there's there's quite a bit of specificity, actually. And then beyond, beyond the CHESS guidelines, a lot of individual specialty organizations also have their own guidelines for their particular patient populations. So the Neurocritical Care Society, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, a variety of different organizations out there. And in general, those those guidelines line up very well with the CHESS guidelines. Um, th- there are some differences in terms of how risk factors are discussed and, and some small differences in specific drug recommendations, but in general, they're, they're pretty well in line. Great. And so what are they looking at, these guidelines? What are they kind of, what factors are they taking into account? So the, the guidelines are, are based on two main things. So the first is the admission diagnosis of the patients. So what we were talking about, are they medical patients, surgery patient? And then within those populations, the VTE risk classification. Um, so a variety of different factors set patients at, uh, at risk for VTE. And so the guidelines are based on that. The, the other factor that comes into play is bleeding risk. And so this is a concept at every point throughout the guidelines that we're not just assessing for risk of VTE, but also the risk of bleeding complications associated with particularly pharmacologic prophylaxis. And so that's going to be a a key concept as we think about all the different recommendations that exist out there. Um, I would point out that part of assessing for bleeding risk is thinking about things like neuroaxial analgesia as well, very relevant in the anesthesia and surgery world, um, as, as that impacts what we can and cannot give and the timing of administration of medications. Absolutely, right. So it's all a balancing act between uh, giving something that is going to increase, however small, increase the risk of bleeding, uh, and on the other hand, wanting to decrease the risk of clotting. That's right. All right. So what about... Um, patients who are ambulating, do they still need to have DVT prophylaxis? Most of the time, yes. So ambulatory patients certainly are at a reduced risk as, a, as compared to those patients who are um, bedridden or have limited mobility. 
Um, so ambulation, we know, does definitely reduce the risk of VTE, but in most case, cases, in patients who have more than very low risk of VTE, we would still want some form of at least mechanical and, in many cases, pharmacologic prophylaxis in addition to any ambulation that's possible. Now, I would think some people are going to ask, now, wait a minute. When I'm at home and I'm walking around, I'm not on DVT prophylaxis, so why do I need to be on it in the hospital? Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and it's part of what makes it more controversial, particularly for those patients who are at the moderate level of risk for developing BTE. But thinking back to the Virchow's triad, you're thinking about vessel injury in particular, um, some increased stasis as compared to perhaps what you'd be doing at home where you might be up and moving around a little bit more. Uh, and so we, hospitalized patients, we do know, particularly surgery patients, uh, have, have some differences from, from those patients who are, who are just sitting around at home. All right. Sounds good. Now, what about um, compression stockings? Are those effective? So graduated <clears throat> compression stockings, and particularly anti-embolism stockings, are, are shown to have lead to a decreased risk of VTE in surgery patients in particular. Not so much evidence in medicine, but, but in surgery, it's actually surprising the significance of, of the decrease in VTE risk with, with these stockings. So they do add some benefit, although they're not the preferred mechanical method. And are those, those are what we refer to as TEDs? Uh, that's right, yes. Okay. Now, I believe we stopped using TEDs here, right, in favor of what are called SCDs. Is that right? That's right. So sequential compression devices, SCDs, you also hear them called IPCs, intermittent pneumatic compression devices. Uh, th- those are actually the preferred method. That's the best evidence for mechanical prevention of VTE, uh, of VTE in our patient population. Uh, uh, and so many, many institutions have actually moved towards using SCDs or IPCs in place of graduated compression stockings. And so is the idea that they don't, uh, there's no added benefit to doing both? That's, that's right. And th- there may even, even be a disadvantage to the stockings from the standpoint of um, increasing risk of bed sores and, and constricting coagulation or constricting blood flow too much. Now, I have heard the rumor. So I think many people think that SCDs work because they squeeze the vessels intermittently in the legs and therefore make it less likely to develop a clot. But there is a rumor that they work at least almost as well, not just as well, if you put them on, for example, an arm. So there must be something else going on there. Yeah, that's exactly right. So we don't completely understand how these devices work, but there's some evidence to suggest that there's more going on than just changing blood flow in and of itself. So uh, we, we know that SCDs in reduce plasminogen activator inhibitor 1, so they're essentially promoting more normal fibrinolysis. And there are studies that have even looked at using SCDs on the arm in particular, uh, which have, have also shown a reduction in BTE risk. So there's clearly more going on than just changing blood flow, and uh, we, we think this plasminogen activator inhibitor is part of that. Great. So what sometimes happens in the OR, Andrew, is that we will have a patient who, uh, for whatever reason, can't have a blood pressure cuff on their arm, maybe because they're operating on the arm and the other arm has a fistula, or who knows. You can't put one on the arm, and so we often will want to put one on the leg, but there's some question that comes up as to whether taking off the SCD from that leg is a problem. But it sounds like from what you're saying, as long as you have one on the other leg, you should be fine. That's the thought, yeah. Certainly it's optimal to use it in in the standard way as much as possible, so on both legs. But uh, based on the evidence that we have, it would suggest that you could at least temporarily use it on one leg and be fine. And, of course, the blood pressure cuff is going to do a similar thing That's true. on the other leg, but yeah. probably not in exactly the same way. All right. So another thing that comes up uh, when we think about clotting is IVC filters. So what's the evidence for using IVC filters? Who should get them? How do we think about that? 
I'd say that IVC filters are the most controversial area of mechanical prevention of, of particularly, particularly PE. Most of that has to do with the fact that the evidence for the use of IVC filters for prophylaxis is pretty weak, although there is some evidence that suggests there is a potential benefit in preventing PE with an IVC filter. It's really not clear. They're not well-designed RCTs at this point, and so hard to say. Uh, the, the downside, really, for the IVC filter is that about 5% of patients will experience some type of harm related to it. So patients who get an IVC filter are actually at higher risk for DBT at the insertion site. Um, occlusion of the IVC can occur, and then filter migration, which, while not very common, is a, is a very, can be a very severe complication of IVC. Uh, the reports of the IVC moving even into the right ventricle and leading to ventricular arrhythmia, and so certainly when that does occur, it's, it's a severe issue. Um, so be, because of this, the CHESS guidelines don't recommend IVC filters for primary prevention in, in any patient population. So um, if, if you don't have a DVT, you shouldn't be getting an IVC filter per the CHESS guidelines. Um, where the controversy comes into play is, is what if I have a trauma patient, for example, who's at very high risk of developing BTE, and they're also at very high bleeding risk, and I can't justify giving them pro pharmacologic treatment or prophylaxis at this point? What's the right thing to do there? Yeah. Um, at this point, it's, it's, it's not really clear. Uh, and so because of that, you see different clinicians coming down on different sides of this. At this point, there is not a recommendation to use an IVC filter even in that type of patient, um, but, but certainly there needs to be more um, research into that area to, to elucidate the, the right answer. Okay, so the trauma patient with the head bleed doesn't get an IVC filter. At least no, one's, no, no guideline out there says to do it. That's right. Now, what about a patient who is on DVT prophylaxis and develops a DVT anyway? Should they get an IVC filter? Or let's say they develop a PE. So in the patient who's already developed a DVT or PE, the recommendation is a little bit different because this is secondary prophylaxis. And so in this case, if you have the patient who has acutely developed this, say within the last three to six months, the specific recommendation on that isn't, isn't particularly clear. But if they have developed that recently and you are not able to use anticoagulation for a period of time, the recommendation for both DVT and PE actually would be to place an IVC filter in that period of time when you can't use anticoagulation, and then preferably retrieve that once you're able to restart anticoagulation. Great. All right, so we mentioned before that there are, uh, you know, kind of a bunch of different risk factors that go into figuring out someone's risk of DVT-PE. What are some of those risk factors? So the, the risk factors play into the different subpopulations. So I'll talk mostly about general surgery um, because this is the patient population we focus on a lot in evaluating risk factors. But I just, just worth mentioning that there are different risk factors depending on what patient population we're talking about. So in general surgery, the CHESS guidelines recommend using the Caprini risk assessment to determine level of risk. And then based on level of risk for VTE, there, there are individual recommendations for what treatment the patient should receive. So to give you an idea of what qualifies you to be at moderate to high risk, of, uh, of VTE, things that start adding up quickly are age greater than 40, BMI greater than 25, patients with sepsis, patients with any malignancy, surgery lasting, lasting greater than 45 minutes, pres presence of a central venous catheter. And so there are lots of things that quickly give you points in this, in this risk assessment method. Most of these items are worth between one and three points each. And to qualify to be moderate risk at, uh, at moderate risk of VTE, you need at least three points. So pretty easy to be at moderate risk of VTE is, is the point I'm making there. 
Um, and so in, in thinking about these patients who are at moderate risk of VTE in, general, in the general surgery population, those patients would be recommended to either receive pharmacologic or mechanical prophylaxis. There's evidence for both. I would say that generally most clinicians fall on the side of, of giving both, in this case, pharmacologic and mechanical, as long as bleeding risk is acceptably low. But in this patient population who's at moderate risk, you have the option. Once you progress to being at high risk of VTE, which, again, only requires five points on the Caprini assessment method, uh, then we would definitely be recommending pharmacologic and mechanical prophylaxis in that setting. Okay, yeah, and some of these risk factors, things like pregnancy, uh, as you said, just uh, being over 40 um, gets you a point. If you're over 60, you get two points just for that. Um, having arthroscopic surgery gets you two points, having malignancy gets you two points, and then you get three points just for being over 75, as many of our patients are. A history of a VTE gets you three points, and then a, a stroke within the past month gets you five points just in and of itself. A fracture gets you five points in and of itself. So there are, as you say, it's, it's what's kind of why we're seeing all our patients on prophylaxis. Exactly. The, the take-home message is basically that most surgery patients qualify for pharmacologic prophylaxis, and we would add mechanical prophylaxis to that in most cases. Great. All right. What about other populations So um, than just general surgery? Things like cardiac patients, thoracic patients, orthopedic patients, you say, can differ. What uh, Trauma patients, certainly. So what do we think of that differs with them? So, so all of these have slightly different risk factors in terms of what sets them up for uh, VTE risk. Uh, but in, in general, the, the key things that stand out are similar. So malignancy is a concern across all populations. Uh, being limited to bed rest is a limitation across all populations. In the medical population, particularly critically ill medical patients would be recommended. They're considered at higher risk. They'd be recommended for both pharmacologic and mechanical um, and, and so in, in general, they, they tend to, to share a, a lot of the same recommendations. But uh, the, is, in terms of what's been assessed from a risk assessment tool standpoint, the Caprini method for general surgery is, is the most robust tool that we have. Um, the, the chest guidelines and then the specialty guidelines in cardiac surgery, thoracic, trauma, uh, all, all provide great in, additional information on considerations for the specific subpopulations. Great. Now, Andrew, one of the things that people may wonder about is uh, when we're thinking about the need to treat uh, people who have a venous thromboembolus, and we'll talk in a minute about what kind of medications we use for both prophylaxis and treatment, but does it matter if the DVT is lower extremity or upper extremity? So this does come up, when it does come up, it comes up as a controversial point. Um, but in general, the, the approach and the recommendation from the chest guidelines would be to treat them the same. So same drug options, same treatment duration. Um, we, if, if we've detected a VTE in the upper extremity, then, then we should treat it. Great. So obviously, a IVC filter is not going to be helpful, but certainly um, treating with, uh, with medications makes sense. Right. All right. So let's move on and then talk about those pharmacologic options. So what are our options for prophylaxis for DVTP? So the main medication that, that we see used in the U.S. at least for prophylaxis would be unfractionated heparin. Um, so dosing reg regimens for unfractionated heparin are usually 5,000 units Q8 hours or Q12 hours. In the past, Q12 hours was a lot more commonly used, and more recently, uh, Q8 hours has been more commonly used, and, and there's more evidence recently to support dosing with, with Q8 hour regimen. So that would be the preferred dosing in patients who actually get unfractionated heparin. Great. All right. So unfractionated heparin, we prefer Q8. Um, does it matter how, how large the patient is? 
So it's a good question. We, the short answer is we're not really sure. If you think about how we use unfractionated heparin for treatment, say a heparin drip, it would make sense that a patient who is larger requires more heparin. Frequently, heparin infusions are dosed in a units per kilo per hour fashion, and so weight certainly bear, has some bearing on its effect on APTT. So we, we think that's probably the case for unfractionated heparin for prophylaxis as well, although data is limited to some studies looking at anti-10A and, and, and some different evidence in that area. I, I will say that we do have evidence for low molecular weight heparin being used in the bariatric surgery population, uh, which demonstrates that uh, higher doses are needed in those patients and can reduce the risk of VTE without increasing risk of bleeding. So the CHESS guidelines actually recommend for anoxaparin a higher dosing regimen, um, whereas in a normal patient population we would use 40 milligrams Q24 typically in the bariatric surgery population with BMIs greater than 40, they recommend 40 to 60 milligrams Q12 hours. Um, so certainly an argument for, for more aggressive dosing in that population. Okay. So let me put you on the spot. Let's say we've, we're rounding together in the ICU and we've got a patient who you know clearly needs both mechanical and um, chemical prophylaxis and they are 200 kilos. Are you going to tell me you want me to do 5,000 Q8 or more? So we will we will typically recommend more in our unit. So we use 120 kilos at this point as a threshold for higher dosing of unfractionated heparin, and higher dosing in our case is typically 7,500 units Q8. With someone up to 200 kilos, uh, we'd look at their BMI and to, to evaluate potentially even going up as high as 10,000 units Q8. Um, we actually are working on a study right now, a few of uh, the clinicians here at, at Hopkins, evaluating anti-10A levels for surgery, actually all ICU patients receiving unfractionated heparin for prophylaxis. And we're trying to determine if there are some differences for patients at different weights um, in, in terms of what that leads to in terms of an anti-10A difference. Now, an anti-10A difference may or may not have clinical meaning, uh, maybe clinically meaningful in in terms of prophylaxis, but this will at least give us some idea as to whether the dosing strategy we use right now makes sense in this population. Okay, that's great. So we'll be interesting to see how that turns out. All right, but you mentioned um, the other option <clears throat> other than unfractionated heparin is low molecular weight heparin, uh, either usually anoxaparin or daltaparin. There's probably others. Uh, we, you went over it a little bit. Anything else to add? Uh, it sounded like usually we would do 40 milligrams daily, um, although some people get 30 Q12. Tell me a little about that. That's right. So anoxaparin 30Q12 is most typically used in the trauma population. That's the dosing that has been studied in the GEART study and is the recommended dosing for prophylaxis in trauma. Um, anoxaparin has actually been shown to be superior to unfractionated heparin in the trauma patient population for prevention of VTE, and so that more aggressive regimen is used. That's likely due to that, that regimen and the need for it is likely due to the higher volume of distribution and higher augmented renal clearance that we see in that patient population. Okay, so for trauma patients, we're going to do 30Q12. For other patients, 40 daily. This is anoxaparin. And then are there any renal uh, issues? Do we need to dose it renally? You mentioned maybe. Yeah, so the, the low molecular weight heparins, and I'm particularly thinking about anoxaparin and daltaparin, do have some renal clearance. Anoxaparin is more affected by that than uh, daltaparin. So for anoxaparin, the, the labeling says to go to once daily dosing if the creatinine clearance in the patient is less than 30. Um, at our institution in the trauma population, because the kinetics become so questionable when you're talking about trauma plus 
problems with renal function, there's there's likely less and less of a benefit to using anoxaparin versus unfractionated heparin when you enter into that many different confounding factors. And so in those patients with AKI, uh, with a creatinine clearance less than 30, we actually recommend using unfractionated heparin, even in trauma, um, just to avoid the renal issue altogether because unfractionated heparin is not affected by renal clearance. Daltaparin is interesting because at at treatment doses, daltaparin needs to have renal function taken into account. It does affect the dosing of daltaparin. But the direct study actually looked at in ICU patients using daltaparin for prophylaxis and found that even in patients with impaired renal function, there was no issue with using the standard dosing of 5,000 units Q24. And so for that reason, when daltaparin is used for prophylaxis, it actually doesn't need to be uh, adjusted for renal dysfunction. Great. Are there any other medications that we can use for DVT prophylaxis? So there are two other ones that that come into play in certain patient populations. So Fondaparinox is one, uh, and so that's particularly used in patients who have a history of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, for which you're trying to completely avoid unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin. Remind us, what is Fondaparinox? So Fondaparinox is a 10A inhibitor, so completely avoiding the issue of um, that we encounter with unfractionated heparin and low molecular weight heparin. All right, so that is an option for DVT prophylaxis. What doses would we give? So the recommended dose of Fondaparinux for DVT prophylaxis is 2.5 milligrams Q24. Uh, similarly, we do have to think about renal dysfunction in, in uh, patients who are on Fondaparinux. So in those with severe impairment of their of their kidneys, we actually cannot use Fondaparinux for okay. DVT prophylaxis. We don't use it at all. Not at all. All right. Yeah. Now, with unfractionated heparin, if we get into trouble and bleeding, we can always give protamine. With what about low molecular weight heparin? So low molecular weight heparin, you can actually use protamine as well. Um, some people are uh, reluctant to, to use low molecular weight heparin because we know that protamine doesn't work quite as well as it does for unfractionated heparin. But particularly when you're talking about prophylactic doses, completely reasonable to re- to reverse these drugs with protamine. Okay, certainly you can try it. And then fondaparinux, not going to help you. Correct. Is there any way to reverse fondaparinux? There's not at this point. Okay, so... Give it with caution. Right. All right. And then uh, you mentioned there were two other things. What's the other possible drug? So the other possible drug is is pretty controversial, and, and that's aspirin. Um, aspirin has been used for VT prophylaxis dating way back into the, the mid-1900s. Uh, um, and there's a wide range of dosing uh, for, for aspirin for prophylaxis. So you'll see anything from 81 milligrams Q24 to 650 milligrams BID. And even those older studies used as much as 3.8 grams of aspirin per day. So wow. a really intense variety in terms of how aspirin has been used for VT prophylaxis and pretty mixed results in terms of its efficacy, um, even compared to placebo. In most of the studies that compare it to things like low molecular weight heparin, uh, the studies would suggest that there is still a marginal benefit to low molecular weight heparin over aspirin, although aspirin does appear to provide some benefit in terms of VT prevention. Uh, there is a higher risk of bleeding with aspirin as compared to low molecular weight heparins, however, so there's certainly a trade-off there. The, the one population where aspirin is really recommended as an option is orthopedic surgery. So particularly those orthopedic procedures that are associated with lower risk of VTE, uh, aspirin uh, is an option in the chest guidelines and in the orthopedic guidelines. Interesting. All right. So I was under the impression that uh, low molecular weight heparin was the most effective for orthopedic surgery. Is that true? So 
for trauma in particular in orthopedic surgery, low molecular weight heparin is the most effective. Okay. Um, but in general orthopedic surgery, we don't know actually what agent is more effective, if, if one agent is more effective than another. Okay. So if the surgeons want to use aspirin and they are okay with the bleeding risk, it's legitimate. It is. All right. Uh, so we talked a little about size and how that matters. You mentioned that in uh, bariatric surgery, uh, you may increase the dose of low molecular weight heparin and unfractionated heparin. Um, anything else we need to cover in terms of how a patient uh, weight affects dosing? I would just say it's worth mentioning talking about underweight patients as well. Um, we talked about this a little bit in our antibiotic prophylaxis and surgery episode too, how uh, when, when you have a patient who's less than 40 kilos. That's typically the weight I think of when you're, when you're thinking about really small adult patients. The strategy that I would typically recommend employing is look at the adult dosing, look at the pediatric dosing, and then use that information to come to a conclusion about what's a reasonable dose for uh, the patient that you're, that you're taking care of. If the pediatric dose leads you to give a larger dose than the adult dose, don't do that. Right. <laughs> Max out at the adult dose. Uh, but, but looking at those two pieces can usually help you make an informed decision in these patients who are really small. Right. I th- yeah, I always remember when I first learned the pediatric dose of Versed or midazolam, uh, and I tried to I figured, oh well, I, well, maybe I'll just learn all the all the weight dosing for everything, and that way I'll be good with I'm with adults or kids. And I think it, that my patient at the time I had like a hundred kilo adult, and it would have been something like twenty milligrams of midazolam. Yeah, exactly. Which would have been a bad move. Exactly. All right. So, what about timing and duration of of prophylaxis? Uh, when do we want to start it, and how long do we want to continue it? So, the general rule is initiate prophylaxis as soon as you can. Um, only hold perioperative pharmacologic prophylaxis if the bleeding risk is, is high, if, if that's a concern for that particular surgery. In general, you can even continue pharmacologic prophylaxis through a procedure. And in fact, we often, for a lot of procedures here, if there's not going to be an epidural or any neuraxial blockade placed, we'll give 5,000 units of sub-Q heparin in pre-op right before surgery. And that's a great idea because the beginning of surgery is really the beginning of their major risk for VTE as you're having vessel injury frequently, stasis, etc. Great. All right. And then how long do we want to continue it? For, for most patients, if you're on pharmacologic or mechanical prophylaxis, you would continue until di- hospital discharge, and then it would be reasonable to discontinue once the patient goes home. There are a few patient populations where the guidelines would recommend extended duration prophylaxis beyond the duration of hospitalization. So in particular, that would be total hip replacements, total knee replacements, patients with hip fracture, and then very high-risk abdominal surgery patients who have cancer. Uh, In all of those patient populations, you would continue for between four and five weeks post-op. So they're going to go home and, in theory, give themselves something like uh, low molecular weight heparin shots. Exactly. So particularly low molecular weight heparin would be recommended in those patients with a malignancy. Um, oral anticoagulants are an option for patients uh, with, with these orthopedic indications. Great. All right. So I think that pretty much covers what we wanted to cover for venous thromboembolism prophylaxis. Let's move on to another common uh, thing we talk about in terms of prophylaxis in the ICU, and that is stress ulcer prophylaxis. So tell me a little about that, Andrew. What, what are stress ulcers and why do we have to prophylax? So stress ulcers are a type of hemorrhagic gastritis. We don't completely understand why they happen, but in general, the thought is that there's an alteration in the normal protective mechanisms that exist in the GI tract. Um, Epithelial turnover becomes a factor, release of various inflammatory mediators, 
uh, like cytokines become a factor, and then reductions in mucosal blood flow, particularly uh, when we're thinking about patients on the ventilator. And so all of these probably play into the differences that set patients up for development of a stress ulcer. Okay. And now um, when we are thinking about prophylaxis, um, you know, is it necessary? How frequently are patients actually going to develop these stress ulcers? So the most recent data shows that without prophylaxis, stress ulcers happen in between 1% and 6% of ICU patients. Older data from more than 30 years ago actually suggested a much higher prevalence of, of this issue, uh, about 40%. And so perhaps over time with, with improved mechanisms of care, we've, we've reduced this risk. But um, still, a, a risk between 1% and 6% is something to pay attention to. Sure. And so how do we decide who needs prophylaxis and who does not? So the, the key guidelines on this are actually quite old. The, they're the American Society of Health System Pharmacist Guidelines, or ASHP. They were published last in 1999, so uh, getting to be quite, quite a while since these came out. Yeah. Uh, but, but those particular guidelines evaluated all the evidence that's out there in terms of who's at risk for stress ulcers. And the key pa- patient populations who are, are highly at risk are those with coagulopathy. So that was defined as platelets less than 50,000 and INR greater than 1.5 or an APTT greater than two times the control value. Uh, So coagulopathy, those patients who are mechanically ventilated for greater than 48 hours, and that has to do with alterations in uh, blood flow that we talked about previously. And then any patient with a history of GI ulceration or bleeding within the last year is probably a re- is, is a reasonably high risk for stress ulcer as well. Now, does it matter if the mechanically ventilated patient is being fed or not? So it's, it's a good question. It, another controversial point, actually. But in general, I would say that the evidence leans towards, yes, these patients are still at risk, even if they are being fed. There may be some level of protective benefit from receiving enteral nutrition or tube feeds, um, but we do still see a reduction in their risk by providing them stress ulcer prophylaxis. So for the time being, the answer is yes, those patients should still get stress ulcer prophylaxis. Okay. And then what are other risk factors? So there's a long list of of other risk factors. Um, Patients who have sepsis, who have been in the ICU for at least a week, uh, patients with occult bleeding in the last week, uh, patients on high-dose corticosteroids, those, those are moderately high risk factors as well. And then other patient populations that we think about having benefit based on literature that's available is patients with severe trauma, so uh, patients with head injury or GCS of 10 or less, patients with burn injury involving greater than 35% of their body surface area, Uh, transplant patients, although that may be in part due to their corticosteroid provision, spinal cord injury, hepatic failure. So there's a laundry list of other things that may set patients up. And so if they have a number of these things together, even if they don't have one of the primary coagulopathy or mechanical ventilation indications, we would consider them for stress ulcer prophylaxis. All right. And you mentioned high-dose steroids. What do we define as high-dose? So uh, uh, equivalent of hydrocortisone, 250 milligrams daily is, is what's typically considered high dose. Great. So that would be about 50 to 60 milligrams of prednisone daily. Exactly. Yep. So quite high dose. All right. Um, so we talked about the um, risk factors. Uh, are there other guidelines out there that relate to um, the need for stress ulcer prophylaxis other than these uh, quite old guidelines that you mentioned? Yeah, the other ones I'd point to would be the Society of Critical Care Medicine, or SECM, guidelines uh, for surviving sepsis. Uh, So these were last updated in 2016. Obviously, they relate to a lot of our ICU patients because a lot of them have sepsis. Um, And so these guidelines recommend that for patients with sepsis, 
uh, or septic shock who have risk factors for a GI bleed, and, and their risk factors are essentially the same as those named in the ASHP guidelines, um, you would want to provide stress ulcer prophylaxis. So in alignment with those older guidelines, which gives us some confidence in the continued reliability of the older guidelines. Great. Now let's talk about what are our options for uh, drugs we can use for this. So the the main recommended options uh, for stress ulcer prophylaxis are proton pump inhibitors, so pentoprazole, lenzoprazole, those types of drugs. The histamine 2 receptor antagonists, H2RAs, famotidine, ranitidine are, are commonly used in this category. And so th- those are the two drug two drug categories that are most frequently recommended for stress ulcer prophylaxis, particularly in the updated SCCM guidelines. And Is one better than the other? So it, it's not completely clear. If, if you had to give an edge to one in terms of efficacy, PPIs have a little bit more data suggesting they're more effective than H2RAs, but most of the meta-analyses actually show no difference between the two in terms of efficacy. It has more to do with the, the side effect differences, but even then, no, nothing too profound stands out between the two. Okay. There's some mixed data on agents like sucralfate and antacids. Um, although they are mentioned in the older ASHP guidelines, I would not expect that in an updated set of the guidelines that they would continue to be uh, mentioned or recommended in any way. The, the data are clearly stronger for PPIs and H2RAs. Okay, great. Now, Andrew, some people might say, man, stress ulcers sound bad. Why don't we just give everyone prophylaxis? What's the downside? So, so like many drugs, there, there are certainly adverse effects to take into consideration with our PPIs and H2RAs. You know, some of the things that have gotten uh, more discussion lately are pneumonia, for one. Um, so there's a concern, particularly with PPIs, but it's also been evaluated for H2RAs, for an increased risk of pneumonia. And that would be coming from the increase of pH in the stomach combined with the risk of aspiration in in these patient populations. In all honesty, the the data don't suggest that this should even be a concern. So the the data do not suggest that patients who are on H2RAs or PPIs are at a higher risk for pneumonia when you look at it uh, in in the meta-analyses. Okay. Uh, What other potential downsides are there? So Clostridium clostridium difficile infection gets a lot of discussion as well. There actually is more evidence to suggest that this is something we should be concerned about, particularly with the PPIs. We're not sure about the H2RAs, whether whether there should be a real concern for C. diff with those agents. What we do know about the PPIs is that the dose and duration matter. And so patients who get twice-daily dosing of PPIs are at a higher risk than those who get once-daily dosing. Patients who receive, receive longer durations of PPIs uh, are at higher risk than those who have short durations. And those long durations, the, the clear thresholds are after two days and after seven days. So it's actually not, a, not as long as you, as you might think. Um, so some of the evidence that's come out related to PPIs and C. diff risk has led to an FDA warning that was issued in 2012, um, specifically letting clinicians and patients know that uh, they do appear to be at higher risk of developing C. diff if they are on a PPI. All right. Um, and then does it matter in terms of patients if they have uh, reduced kidney function? Do we need to? Does that affect our choice of agent? So, reduced kidney function wouldn't affect your choice of agent. At least most people would say that it would affect dosing to some degree for um, some of our H2RA options. But uh, the one thing that has come up recently is that there's some recent evidence that suggests patients who are on PPIs for a longer duration are at an increased risk of developing kidney injury. Um, 
this is a controversial study that was published within the last couple of years and, and um, has shown this increased risk of kidney injury with patients on PPIs, but it's, we, we don't know that that's a cause-effect relationship. There are a lot of questions about the, the, ca- the causative effect of PPIs and whether what was observed there had, any, had much to do with the PPI itself or whether it had to do with other um, specific factors in that patient population. So more to come on that. You will hear some people a little bit leery about using PPIs in patients who have AKI, though, uh, because of that data. All right, interesting. What about drug-drug interactions with stress also prophylaxis? Is that an issue? So it, for the most part, this isn't a huge issue, but, but there are two things to think about um, in specific cases where, where stress ulcer prophylaxis might be problematic for drug-drug interaction. So one is that some drugs require a more acidic environment in order to be appropriately absorbed. And so you may have less absorption and bioavailability of a given medication if you're concomitantly giving a PPI or an H2RA. Uh, for, for most things, this isn't going to be that clinically relevant However, some of the key categories of drugs that we think about this more often as being problematic because the exact dose really does seem to matter, the bioavailability of the drug really does seem to matter, is in HIV. Protease inhibitors are significantly affected, have reduced absorption in the, in the setting of PPIs, um, and so that, that's a concern. And then more recently, some of the newer agents that are used for hepatitis C are impacted in the same way. And so depending on what agent we're talking about, you may be able to avoid this concern just by appropriately timing your medications to avoid the issue. However, uh, certain medications include labeling that would specify specifically avoiding these prophylactic agents altogether. Um, the, the other option is sometimes when, when a PPI can't be used, an H2RA can be used. So that really depends on, on the drug. So important to take a look at the individual package labeling to know what to do. Great. Um, what about inhibition of hepatic enzymes? Uh, is that an issue? So this is one that was pretty hotly discussed uh, several years back, particularly PPIs. They're, they're moderate inhibitors of CYP2C19. And so because clopidogrel... Uh, is turned into it, its active metabolite or metabolized into its active metabolite via 2C19 in part, uh, there was concern that the presence of a PPI in a patient in clopidogrel might actually make clopidogrel less effective. Mm-hmm. So this is particularly concerning in patients with recent MI and stents yeah. and wanting to maximize the efficacy of their antiplatelet agents. Um, so this was this is pretty controversial for a while. People were avoiding PPIs altogether with clopidogrel. I think as more data have come out, the initial pharmacodynamic data that caused this concern has led to some clinical uh, research and clinical evidence seems to suggest that this, this might not actually be an issue uh, cl- in terms of how it plays out clinically. Nonetheless, th- there is an FDA warning for omeprazole specifically because this is the most significant of the TC19 inhibitors among the PPIs. To, so the recommendation or the FDA warning is to avoid concomitant use of omeprazole and clopidogrel. Most clinicians would tell you that pantoprazole at the very least is completely fine. So uh, pretty low 2C19 inhibition from pantoprazole. And so that's a good alternative within the PPIs. All right, great. Now, Andrew, as I've seen studies popping up here and there, uh, it seems like there is some debate about whether we really need to be doing stress ulcer prophylaxis at all. Is that true? Yeah, so this is being called into question more and more. You know, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about the the prevalence of stress ulcers in this population being somewhere between 1% and 6%. More and more evidence suggests that nowadays that number is is on the low side of that range. 
And so uh, th there's a question as to, to the value of this in terms of the cost and thinking about side effect data that's now available. Actually, the, the pop-up study recently showed that prevalence of upper GI bleed was low in, in ICU patients and that PPIs actually didn't decrease prevalence. And so I think more and more we're going to be seeing clinicians raising questions about whether we should be giving PPIs for prophylaxis to anybody or stress ulcer prophylaxis to anybody. I, I think the jury's still out on that. We're, we're clearly still giving stress ulcer prophylaxis to most patients at most institutions uh, who have appropriate indications. But I think it's, it's worth asking that question and, and seeing what else comes out in, in the literature. Great. All right, Andrew, anything else to add before we wrap up? No, I just want to say thanks again for having me, Judd. Thanks for coming on. All right, that is it for today. Go on the website at accrac.com where you can leave a comment that everyone can see and learn from. It's always an additive bonus when people go and leave comments because we can all learn from your perspective and your experience. So tell us, for example, is this how you're doing DVT prophylaxis and stress ulcer prophylaxis? Are there any places that, are, that have stopped doing stress ulcer prophylaxis based on the more recent data? Uh, how about doing stress ulcer prophylaxis for patients who are intubated and getting enteral nutrition? Certainly where I trained at UCSF, uh, we would not give those patients stress ulcer prophylaxis, uh, but I wonder what they're doing now or what other places are doing. Uh, so leave us a comment so we can all know. Uh, you can also, of course, email me at acrac at acrac.com. If you are a fan of the show, please take a moment and go to iTunes where you can leave a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show when they're looking, searching for an anesthesia podcast. It'll make it pop up sooner and more easily. And, of course, if you would be so kind as to consider supporting the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show and give even if it's just a dollar or two. It makes a big difference, and we certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. For the ACRAC podcast and Andrew Jarrell, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.